Okay, so I'm thinking, I'm guessing, I'm hoping that some of you guys caught yesterday's video. I took a deep dive on this Huawei situation, which is super complicated. Tried my best to fit as much information into a 45-minute video as I possibly... Look at that, almost exactly 45 minutes. I tried to fit as much as I could into that video because it's just... There are so many factors at play in this ban, this uh, latest development, U.S. government implement, implementing this situation in which uh, suppliers with any kind of like U.S. origin can't supply Huawei anymore. And I guess in that video, I was trying to get into what this means in the immediate sense, the, the long term, and just how to perceive it, how to uh, boil it down as much as possible into what the possible motivations are for something like this. And, and of course, the consequences to end users, to buyers, to individuals who already have Huawei products and those that were considering purchasing one in the future. And just one day later, we've already got our first development change in yesterday's story. Uh, here on Bloomberg, U.S. gives limited relief for consumer consumers, carriers using Huawei. So this is really strange. Like, right away one day later we've got some type of reprieve you have this gigantic news story in which yesterday i'm discussing how the damage here is dealt through the media in, in the sense that once this gets exposed consumer confidence changes people's perceptions they change there's really no immediate backtracking on that but from a rule perspective there is a kind of immediate backtracking which to me brings into question the entire motivation behind something like this. So the Commerce Department on Monday granted a 90-day relief for certain U.S. broadband companies and wireless customers using Huawei Technologies equipment. So this 90-day license, essentially, it works temporarily to, to let business continue as usual. The license will allow operations to continue for existing Huawei mobile phone users and rural broadband networks. So in the previous video, I explained how many of the non-top-tier largest telcos in the U.S. actually rely on Huawei equipment for their rural connectivity because of the cost-effectiveness and reliability of Huawei's products in the telco marketplace. And when this executive order came through, they were asking questions, rightfully so, of like, how do we continue to do business tomorrow? Because if we can't, say, order parts for a, a busted component, then what happens for our customers? How do we explain this? And so forth. So the way that this 90-day reprieve operates is, is essentially that they can continue to interact in the same way that they have up until this point. And the same thing goes for consumers and on the Google side, where uh, for the time being, support should still be administered, potentially even updates, and that the, the effectiveness or the eventual effectiveness of this, uh, of this executive order won't come into play until after these 90 days, unless some sort of deal is reached in the meantime, or this particular temporary license is extended. So, why? What? You do this thing, you have this executive order, and then you immediately have this, this temporary license. To me, w whether this is the case or not, the way it looks as an outsider is that this is some sort of a, some sort of a scare tactic, some sort of a delay tactic, some sort of a bargaining chip. That's the smell here. Is that like, 
well, we don't really want to put our own citizens out, our own small businesses, smaller businesses than the large telcos. They still have a right to operate and they rely on this equipment. And of course, there are also American citizens with, with Huawei devices and uh, citizens in Western countries with Huawei devices. Should they really all be messed up immediately as well? So it's, it's like a... It's like they get the the best piece of having the news out there and like, oh, this is this is terrible. Keep your distance. I'm just obviously I'm uh, I'm kind of insinuating that that's the message that that the perception is what people pulled from it. You get to say that one day and then the next day say, oh, yeah, but uh, since we since we're at the top of the food chain here, we can also say, you know what? It's OK for a little bit. Is kind of like the king in the kingdom when he pardons the individual to showcase absolute power. Little, is that like a Game of Thrones reference right there? You didn't expect that. Yeah, you didn't expect that, Will. You see, it just, I try to tie it all together because somehow my news feed is like Huawei and Game of Thrones. Yeah. All at the same time. I can't get away from it. You perked my interest. I got you involved. Yeah. Uh, but that's the kind of move, right? It's like, oh, in case you didn't know, I have the power. To, to end you, or I have the power to disrupt you in a massive way, we're going to let it go. We're going to be cool for a little bit. Just let that sink in. Let that simmer. You see how that works? So, again, maybe there are other reasons. I can only read the information that's available to me, and you know we do not have the whole picture here, but as an outsider, and I'm sure just like many of you attempting to make sense of this situation, that's the way you're going to read it. Is like, okay, so they can operate for 90 days. Cool. And then what after 90 days? I know I know the average person is going to buy a smartphone and expect to hold on to it and have it serviced and supported for more than 90 days. So does it really solve anything as far as the original fear associated with the initial announcement? No, not really. It, it makes it a little better in the interim, but really it's just a pause button. A pause button to showcase... Who's in control of the pause button? That's my take on that. I can't see another way to read it at this moment in time. But if you do have a Huawei device or if you are serviced by one of these regional telcos in the U.S., uh, your, your services are not going to be disrupted or changed in any meaningful way, at least for the next 90 days. So that's worth mentioning. Also, Will's just reminding me here, a brand new Honor device launched, uh, the Honor 20, and it doesn't seem to care at all about this situation. Now, this, of course, was already in production. This is Huawei's budget lineup of smartphones. I think this one retails around 400 bucks. But the internals, very similar to some of the flagship devices. It's got the Kirin chip inside. So for all intents and purposes, a Huawei device launched uh, in the face of all of this, of all of this bickering. And of course, not in, not in the U.S., worth noting, but in other places. Uh, next story here, Will. Rare Earths, the U.S.-China trade war, and your phone. So this is another, a whole different angle to this conversation because this is one of the ways that China can bite back uh, on, uh, towards the U.S. and make their lives a little more difficult. Uh, certain businesses, of course, leadership. China is the biggest exporter of rare earths these are minerals and things that are not necessarily as rare as like gold and silver but rare nonetheless and critical parts of various components that exist within your smartphone 
and other and other technologies as well, including batteries. You may have heard this in the past, like batteries require lots of uh, of these very rare minerals and things like this. It's been one of the one of the difficulties in in uh, the adoption of the electric car, cost effectiveness of electric vehicles has been battery tech and production of these enormous batteries for things like Teslas is one of the reasons uh, Elon Musk and Tesla they put that they have to try to put that gigantic battery plant or they did put it where is that out in out in Vegas uh, Nevada somewhere Gigafactory yeah Gigafactory and and so on but a lot of the materials that go into those types of components come from China I believe it's something like 71% of the world's rare earths mined last year were accounted for uh, via China mm-hmm. Australia and the U.S. were distant runners-up, together producing less than a third of China's 120,000 metric tons of rare earths. So the U.S. relied on China for about four of every five tons of rare earths imports between 2014 and 2017, and last year purchased $160 million worth. Now, the interesting thing here is like, yes, this is a, a potential point of retaliation, but there was some uh, theatrics involved because the leader of China, is he the prime minister, president? What do they call him? Just leader? What is the name? Uh, do they say? Vice premier? The vice premier, Liu He, Liu He it was with him. But anyway, the leader of China and his top trade negotiator, visited a domestic rare earths facility and analysts speculated that it that it was a strategic move that they showed up there after all this announcement to be like we got some stuff too to get the photographs and to use it as a their very own bargaining chip you know what i'm saying right now hmm. this is when like you're getting bullied at school and all of a sudden you show up like and, and your older brothers walk you to school and they got like the leather jackets on because it's 1957 or whatever, you know, and the, and the slick hair. And all of a sudden, the dude who was bullying you is like, oh, man, they got something. He, he's got something, too. You know what I'm saying? Like John Travolta in Greece. Yeah. Something like that, Will. I was thinking more like West Side Story oh, okay. with the switchblades. <laughs> that was a musical, actually. Anyway, you know what I'm talking about. It's, uh, it's a way of showcasing, hey, we can... There is a potential retaliation here without saying very much at all. Just pretend you're visiting this place, get the photographs and go on. But it comes back to what I was talking about yesterday, which is this idea that everyone suffers. This conflict, everyone suffers. This is no longer about friendly competition, but instead it's, it's a deadlock. There's, there's very little progress being made, and now we're resorting to these kinds of tactics that we're experiencing right now in this trade talk. And it's only going to make progress more difficult in general, technology, advancement, the future, and so on. If these rare earths get withheld or taxed or tariffed, you can immediately imagine the potential consequences for certain vendors, including the likes of potentially Tesla. I don't know. Uh, how much of their material comes via China, but potentially that's that could be significant. And whether it's Tesla or some other American company, considering the fact that they import this uh, vast amount of this this particular substance, there's a potential here that this could hurt, that this could be painful if it swings back the other way. So uh, same same conclusion as yesterday. Let's get together. Let's sort it out. 
let's uh, world peace, right? Well, mm-hmm. for, for for the purpose of tech and other reasons, obviously. But anyway, uh, moving on in the same kind of territory, but on the flip side of it, I talk so much about the benefit in the technological space in relationship to competition and how it brings the best stuff forward. It, it, it delivers the best products at the best prices for so many people. This is on the flip side of that, why a T-Mobile Sprint merger could be devastating for consumers. And this is via Market Watch. Uh, I don't, uh, some people actually asked me to comment on this. For the record, I'm located in Canada. I'm not a T-Mobile, Sprint, Verizon, or AT&T customer. But there is a, a deal on the table here. Federal Communications Commission Chairman Ajit Pai said he plans to recommend the merger. Now, this is the same dude who took all that heat. Do you guys remember that? He was memed up. It was the whole thing. That was back around the time when we were talking about, uh, what was it? What What's the name? Uh, net neutrality. Mm-hmm. When, when net neutrality was the big hot topic. This is him. So anyhow, he, uh, I don't know how many fans he's going to, he's going to, accumulate from this new one he might get the same he might get memed up again because i don't know i i mean first of all like i said i'm not a customer of either of these two companies but this seems like one of those cases where if you if this thing takes place this merger it could be it could have some negative consequences it could have a negative impact on the telco marketplace in the united states and one of those areas where competition is so important to maintain it to a degree to keep the rules of the game in a safe territory where there are actually a few options available. What the right number of options is, that's potentially what can be debated. But from personal experience here in our domestic, in our local market here in Canada, we have three carriers, like three big players, three three major competitors. Uh, That's Bell, Telus, and Rogers. And their prices are all identical. They're like they're kind of like the gas stations around here because it's a similar situation for us in that department. And is there really competition? Are they are they really pushing each other forward? Or and do customers have enough choice? Now a few other new players have emerged, but they don't have the same footprint potential. They don't have the same uh, coverage. It's an uphill battle to be a new player. Freedom Mobile is the one that Will's going to showcase here. Actually, I think you're a Freedom Mobile customer. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Or you used to be? You are. Yeah. yeah. So they uh, attempt to offer a lower price, but there are consequences. Coverage is not as good. It's so bad. Yeah. So, but you get it. But at least there's some other choice. Yeah, it's an option. Which you which you uh, selected for that particular option. So uh, again, this this guy's pointing at us here. He's uh, he likes the option. I I they didn't pay him. He's just he just feels that way. What's he from? Arrested Development. David. Yeah. Okay. Arrested. Will Arnett? Will, Will Arnett, sorry. Will, you just called Will Arnett David Arquette? <laughs> sorry, David. How dare you? It rhymes, though, so I, mean, yeah. I feel like I can cut you, cut you some slack on that one. Anyway, both uh, T-Mobile and Sprint's stock price is down right now. Apparently, the deal is around $26 billion in all-stock merger. Speculation has been mounting for years. For the record, Sprint, T-Mobile, uh, number three and number four American wireless carriers. I know a lot of people like T-Mobile, there are better deals to be had on T-Mobile, is, is my understanding. Uh, but of course, this merger is now on the table, and that could di- potentially disrupt that. So this might be one of those cases. M- maybe Trump should be stepping in here instead of in the Huawei case. This could be one of those situations in which you can protect the marketplace, keep the competition alive and healthy, 
and offer customers more choices instead of less. But at this point, the guy, the main, you know, this main player, Ajit Pai, who said he plans to recommend the merger. So we may see it take place anyhow. Uh, my personal opinion, much like the previous conversation, is that competition is a good thing. Choices, choices for customers are a good thing most of the time. So uh, based on my limited knowledge on the situation, I would say that that would probably be my position. But this is one of those areas where I think people can can carry on the conversation down in the comment section, especially people who happen to be customers of these two brands. You can let me know and let the audience know if this merger would serve you well or if you would prefer for these two companies to remain independent. Uh, some good news. Well, not all doom and gloom. We can't do that. <clears throat> uh, Sony demos PlayStation 5 fast load times. Hints at cloud gaming future. So we spoke on a previous episode about how Sony and Microsoft, amidst all this tech warfare, are, are coming together. They're making friends. It's a beautiful thing. And it, it sounds like customers, in this case, may benefit. A merger, unnecessary, but interoperability, again, enhancing the idea of choice. And so with this uh, PlayStation 5 load time demonstration, Spider -Man, a Spider-Man level was able to load in less than a second. That's got to be exciting for you, right, Will? You got to load up Spider-Man. Is it really intensive? I guess so, right? Yeah, Spider-Man's like, an open-world uh, game. It's a it's open a, world. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. pretty intense. And uh, so, anyway, they showcase they compared some performance as well. PS4 Pro to the next-gen PlayStation. I guess they're not calling it PlayStation Five officially at this point, but these faster load times, of course, open up all kinds of potential for cloud-based gaming and this relationship with Microsoft and Microsoft's backend, Microsoft's cloud experience and uh, and product should allow for, there you have it right there, 0.83 seconds. It should allow for uh, an enhancement in this department and potentially a, a really positive development in the gaming space with instant gaming, which is what we saw with Google Stadia and now it looks like we might see something similar or at least something competitive coming out of the traditional gaming companies, uh, Sony and Microsoft. So that's pretty good news. And uh, they laid out a lot more information during this address here regarding the PlayStation 5. Uh, we will leverage backwards compatibility to transition our community to next-gen faster and more seamlessly than ever before. The company presentation said at the event, Sony intends to use PS4 games to encourage early adopters. So some backwards compatibility, which tends to be such a uh, significant point of contention for individuals with next generation consoles. It's gonna have an eight core CPU based on AMD's third gen Ryzen line and include a GPU that supports ray tracing graphics. Sony has not yet demonstrated ray tracing on the PS5 though. So it's gonna be next gen, it's gonna be more powerful. As, as is usual, these things rarely compete with the top tier cutting edge gaming PCs. But improvements here are interesting and significant because of the footprint, the impact, the fact that these things are, end up in so many homes and change the way that so many people game in, in a casual fashion. So interesting times, new consoles. It was at a certain point seeming like the console was losing some steam. Did you see what I did with steam? See, I didn't do that on purpose, I promise. Maybe I did. I don't know. It seemed like it was losing some steam, but maybe it's back. Maybe the console is back in action. There's one thing I will say for the console. Casual gaming, social gaming, couch gaming, that's still where it's at. 
And to be honest with you, in my life, I, there's, there's still certain opportunities that arise for that. I, I mentioned in a previous episode that I played the Zelda, the, the recent Zelda on the yeah. Switch. And that takes it a step further where, I mean, you could take the whole unit with you wherever it is that you go. And so, or play it on the couch, on the TV. Yeah. And it's kind of an interesting, it's an interesting idea, this idea that Google is also seems to be a part of, of like that gaming doesn't have to be so rooted in one spot, like that you don't necessarily have to be at a desk with a bunch of peripherals. And that, again, depending on how much Sony and, and Microsoft embrace the cloud, that it might be possible to take some of these titles with you on demand on your mobile devices as well. So things could get really interesting. Of course, when you're offloading that processing in the fashion that Google showcased with Stadia, it opens up all kinds of doors for how you interact with gaming. And just the way our lifestyles are now with mobile devices and being being away from maybe your dedicated gaming setup, I could see this be being interesting. Uh, next up, Apple introduces first eight core MacBook Pro. This sort of happened quietly. It's not a major update. It's uh, it's just basically the MacBook Pro getting the eighth and ninth generation Intel Core processors, bringing eight cores to the MacBook Pro for the first time. Uh, they say this is 40% more performance than a six core MacBook Pro, making it the fastest Mac notebook ever. These new processors combined with powerful graphics, the brilliant and colorful Retina display, Apple's words, super fast SSDs and Apple T2 security chip, all day battery life and Mac OS make MacBook Pro the world's best pro notebook. That's all from Apple. That's their words, not mine. Anyway, there's a new version of the 13 inch as well as the 15 inch model. It kind of a, a moot thing for me because I've switched over recently. I used to regularly upgrade to whatever the latest and greatest MacBook Pro was, but after having issues with the keyboards, it was, uh, I haven't looked back, so. Apparently they made some changes on the keyboard. Yeah, but well. they've been saying that for how long, Will? Uh, like yeah. They said that on the previous, the previous version, we put a membrane under the butterfly key switches, and then like within a week on that MacBook Air, my E key was busted. So I'm not sure I trust Apple in the keyboard department right now based on my personal experience. I had two laptops now, suffer from it. I read an article as well uh, today, maybe you can look it up, type Apple, type MacBook Air keyboard problems. There's an, there was another article written today of an individual uh, experience. Yeah, Apple lied to me about the MacBook Air. Click on that one right there. Yeah, so this is via ZDNet. And it's a tech reporter who himself, this just came out May 19th, who himself was like, it's not going to happen to me. How common can it actually be? And so against his better judgment, he bought one of these MacBook Airs and his was busted again in a very short period of time on the latest MacBook Air. Even though he went into the store and you can read this article, it's somewhere in there. Yeah. So he had a conversation in the Apple store Here's, here's what he says. I hear people are complaining that these keyboards don't work very well. Haven't there been problems with dust? And the Apple Store saleswoman, it's the opposite. She explained what she meant by the opposite. There's no way dust can get in there because they put an extra layer of plastic underneath to make sure it doesn't. So this is the official line in the store, but now we have all these experiences outside of the store where people are having these issues. You really don't have to research too far and wide to see, to see how widespread the issue itself happens to be. Apple hasn't officially put any kind of number on it, but our just minor, tiny little case study here in the studio 
and and actually other places have done it as well. I think we referenced it in a previous episode. Was it Basecamp? The founder or one of the employees at Basecamp, the, which is a startup, they ha have, have purchased a large number of MacBooks with butterfly key switches. They did their own internal survey to see how many keyboards were affected and uh, they found half, what was, go back up to the headline there, Will. Nearly half of the third gen Apple butterfly keyboards at Basecamp uh, ha have had issues. So again, everywhere we can get you know real numbers and data, whether it's here in our studio or via these, serv these surveys like this one at Basecamp, it looks like the problem is just way more widespread than Apple wants to say. I don't know what their plan of attack is. Apparently they're repairing them, but is that really a solution? Right, if you're without your laptop, has is that really has anything been solved there in that situation? In, in my opinion, not so much. You expect to hold on to these things potentially for a while. They are expensive devices, and this is a this is a component which is just it's very important on a laptop. The keyboard has to be able to hold up to li to a little bit of usage, and it doesn't appear to be the case that this one is. So anyhow. That was a little sidetrack. Apple does have some powerful laptops. So if, you, if you're willing to deal with the potential keyboard issues or maybe you hook up this MacBook Pro to an external keyboard or setup at times, Will's showcasing my e-key difficulties on the original video. Anyhow, if you, have a, if you have a high threshold for potential problems and you're, you're cool with taking that risk and you really want a powerful Mac notebook with a, an eight-core CPU, well, you can go out and grab it anyhow, but it ain't going to be for me. Did you know there's a new version of Google Glass, Will? Google Glass Enterprise Edition 2. It has a modern 10 nanometer Qualcomm SoC, a bigger battery, and a version with safety glasses. So apparently this is enterprise oriented. They're, they're not trying to go after the general public with this one as much. And as you can see, that's a safety, that's a pair of safety glasses with something that looks a lot like the previous version of Google Glass. And it's going to be a thousand bucks. It's still very pricey, but maybe Google sees an application within assembly lines or elsewhere where this could, could increase or improve productivity. They're not putting it away just yet. They're changing the tactic. But man, that seems like a lifetime ago that the original Google Glass came out and almost no one liked it, I would say. It was cool for five minutes. They were really expensive too. It was very expensive, and but also people were just uncomfortable with it. I remember hearing about bands in San Francisco, since you're the San Francisco news guy, Will, where uh, certain bars and things like that, had they, they were seeing so many people wearing Google Glass and people didn't feel comfortable in the presence of everyone recording all the time. And so there you go. Our patrons have expressed concern with being recorded while enjoying themselves at the Willows. So I guess that was the bar or restaurant which had the ban originally. Uh, so, so people still aren't 100% comfortable, but in, an, in a commercial setting, you could see a potential there. I, I certainly can see the angle and maybe that's the foot in the door. Maybe people work on the assembly line. They're like, this is so useful. I want to take it home with me and I don't care if I'm scrutinized. I don't care if I'm kicked out of the bar. Maybe it's possible. Uh, next up, did you know that Jeff Bezos has his moonship? You didn't know that. No. Yeah, he's uh, he wants to go to the moon. Just moon ship. Yeah, it's uh, you know he's trying to go to space, right? Well, yeah. everybody's trying to go to space these days, including us. It's our next project. Uh, just like Elon Musk, yeah, he's uh, he's interested in space, which is kind of cool. The rocket in question is New Glenn, currently under development. 
with plans to become one of the most powerful rockets on Earth. I think it looks pretty cool. Jack, what do you think? You into that? Looks futuristic. There's Jeff. He's feeling great. He's reverse aging somehow. You got to appreciate that. Maybe he's already got the moon minerals. Maybe he's the one with the rare earths. Jack injecting it straight into his bloodstream. He's reverse aging. Don't quote me on that. Although Blue Moon was originally envisioned as a, as a cargo vessel capable of delivering gear for experiments, experiments, Jack, he's doing them on himself probably, and habitats by mid-2020. In 2017, he promised that it would be a launcher agnostic spacecraft that could fly on top of its own New Glenn rocket or on NASA's new spa space launch system. Apparently, that thing is capable of delivering between 3.6 and 6.5 metric tons of payload. I mean, is it really going to look like that? that? That much payload? Six and a half metric tons? Wow. The engine is 3D printed. It's all very high tech. It's all very interesting. They're pouring billions of dollars into it. Everybody is interested in space again. I can't say I mind. It's cool. It's interesting. Could it be a new private space race? Never mind Russia and the United States, but Bezos versus Musk. Mm -hmm. Pay-per-view event. Tune in. You take Musk. Jack takes Musk. Last up, Will. This is the last one from me. Millennials and Gen Z are increasingly pessimistic about their lives. Survey finds. Are we millennials? We're all millennials. You guys know that? So I hope we're not too pessimistic, guys. Let's get it together here. Uh, there was a, a study done by Deloitte. It released its global millennial survey, around 13,500 millennials. That's anyone born between 83 and 94. So we're old millennials, by the way. But we're in there. We're definitely in there. Spread across 42 countries and then another 3,000 Gen Z respondents. Those are people born between 95 and 2002 from 10 countries. And the percentage of respondents who think that business businesses are making a positive impact, that dropped six points. So pessimistic about business. And we have a graph here sort of suggesting what it is that's bothering the satisfaction level of millennials and Gen Z. Dissatisfied with pay, financial rewards. You see that, Will? 43%. That's almost half. Almost half of people our age are dissatisfied with pay and financial rewards. So entitled. That's Jack's words right there. So not enough opportunities to advance. That's 35%. Lack of learning and opportunities, 28%. Don't feel appreciated, Jack. Don't feel appreciated. Poor work-life balance. Boredom, not challenged. What's funny about this to me is that the same 20% that doesn't feel appreciated also feels bored. <laughs> you know what I mean? 23 and 21. Hey, what? So you got a poor work-life balance. You don't feel appreciated. Lack of opportunity and you're bored. I don't know. Are you out there? Are you doing it? Don't like the workplace culture. So funny enough about this is that the Gen Z, the younger people, are more optimistic than the millennials, us. So, like, the next generation is, like, for example, dissatisfied with pay financial rewards. Now, they might just still be students. That could be part of the reason. 
But in, if you look down this list, it's they are the more optimistic group of this particular bunch. Now, if you scroll down a little further, Will, what you'll see is that this changes depending on the nation, depending on the country you're looking at. And the uh, optimism-pessimism score there, defined by the red line in this particular graph, at one end of the spectrum, you have China and India, lots of optimism, almost uh, 60%, over 60% optimism. And then that slowly scales down US, Canada, Australia, all the way to France, where it's like 20% optimistic. It's not, it's not looking good. Uh, apparently, a lot of this has to do with bleak economic expectations. Uh, in another survey record, 49% of millennials would, if they had a choice, quit their current jobs within the next two years. So, not, not very satisfied. Not a very satisfied bunch. Now, here's my thing. How much of this is real? Like, act, an actual permanent thing? And how much of this is, is on the individual? Like, how much of this belongs to the person? Is... Is opportunity a thing that belongs to the individual or is opportunity a thing that just happens to be out there? Well, it's probably a little bit of both, but you only control one of them. You, 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 you don't really control the environment in a meaningful way to the same degree that you control your own decisions, attitudes, and so forth. And in a weird way, when it comes to optimism, risk-taking, uh, investment, progress, you got to be a bit optimistic to go after those things to begin with. If you're already pessimistic, you're probably you, you're 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 probably less likely to take those risks and and maybe uh, carve your way out of this lack of satisfaction. Like it's a weird it's a weird thing to say that you're bored and not challenged, but then to also say you're you don't feel appreciated. Like it's. That's a real, the world is happening to me kind of mindset comparative to I can go out and change some of this. So I don't know. I mean, on this spectrum, I'm definitely, I'm fairly satisfied. I mean, maybe we can go around the room here. Bunch of millennials. How are you guys doing? Don't lie, Jack. I don't believe you. Will? Yeah, I feel pretty good. Yeah, see? You see what it's I'm all in the mind. It's in the mind. You know, I think social media has a lot to do with it in terms of shaping the world but like the opportunity for yourself i mean you could you i mean you can figure out yourself out right you can discipline yourself and just really put yourself out there and and make opportunities for yourself yeah so really so this is one of this could be one of those situations of expectations versus reality where it's like if you set yourself up in such a fashion that like the expectation is outlandish. If you if you expect like some immediate reward or you want something more than what you put in, then you're going to be upset. You're not going to be satisfied with the outcome because your expectation was already set up to be far beyond your reality. So like you said, through social media and, and, and other places as well, it's skewing people's reality. It's because it's, it's skewing their expectation, which therefore influences their perception of their own reality. So it's like, I, I feel like that's gotta have a play here. Uh, elsewhere in here, it said that, it talked a little bit about how important a high salary was. 
The millennials, 52% say that earning a high salary was a top priority, whereas 56% of their Gen Z peers said so. Uh, and 39% of millennials saw starting a family as important, while 45% of the younger group. So they, again, the Gen Z with the, the slightly more optimistic outlook are like, yeah, we, I could see having a family. Whereas the millennials, not so much. You think just a younger person in general is more optimistic? You felt more optimistic when you were younger? Yeah, it's it's... It's totally possible. But then on the flip side, you have to be like, this young group is also inundated with the social media stuff, right? And they're not fully formed yet. So the potential for impact there should be substantial. It's just not hitting them in the same way. Yeah. So, well, but then how do you explain, how do you explain the demographic issue with other countries? You see, because those age groups didn't didn't apply there. It's just people are more optimistic in India and China. You see, it's like it's a very Western phenomenon, this idea of pessimism. Based on the findings here by Deloitte, like it's you're talking about from China to France, you're talking about th over three X the optimism based on this based on this uh, finding here. So there's a lot of components likely at play, but. The truth of the matter is it's that whatever behaviors are taking place amongst this group of people is not resulting in the outcomes they're hoping for. And does that mean that it's the environment that's responsible or is it the individual that's responsible? That's what you have to come to. I prefer to focus on the individual only because that's the thing you control. We are all individuals. We all have some degree of agency over our decisions and what it is that we happen to do or not do. But like, for example, the people that were uh, the people that were polled here, a lot of them said the m most important thing for them to do is to travel a lot. <laughs> you know what I mean? So like, how long can you do that for? Travel and seeing the world was the top list aspiration for the group in the millennial category. That's expensive. Now you got to have the high paying salary to support whatever your major goal is. And then do you necessarily get out of it what you want? If your agenda is to like travel and vacation, that's like, well, that's not working. That's the opposite, right? So if that's your top priority, how, I mean, you just can't wait for that next, you can't wait to get that next vacation maybe. Anyway, it's a complicated topic. I'd love to hear from you guys. You're likely in one of these two categories. You're likely a Gen Z or a millennial? Are you satisfied? Are you optimistic? And, and what kind of a role do you play on a personal level? How do you see your role in your own improvement as far as uh, optimism versus pessimism? Is the future bleak or can we figure it out, human beings? Guys like Willie do. Are we gonna make it? Nah. Will, come on, dude. I've been, I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic, but then again, I always have been. You could have asked me on this survey. Maybe not. See, that's where it's weird. I feel like I was more pessimistic in the age group that you're pointing at, Jack. When you were talking about, oh, they're younger, that's why they're more optimistic, I wasn't. I would say I became more optimistic. Teenage angst? Yeah, it's, yeah. yeah your typical teenage angst. Just time-wise. You just had a lot of time in front of you. Yeah.
Well, there's certainly there's certainly when you're younger, there's a feeling that that there's more life in front of you than behind you because that's real. That's the reality of the situation. But uh, I don't know. I think that it's also there's a lot of growing that goes on in that period of your life and a lot of questions that you feel like you need to have answered. You don't necessarily have answers for, and that can cause angst as well. Different problems for different groups, but it is interesting to see the different answers. And, uh, and now I'll be on the lookout for yours. What does the future look like? Millennials, Gen Zs, we got to figure it out, guys. That's the future of every, I mean, that's the world. That's it. We got to figure it out. There's no other option. We're up against it. Things are happening. Trade wars. Who's going to do it? Well, so it's not going to be Otis. It's going to have to be some millennial somewhere. Yeah. Anyway, you got anything you want to talk about today, Will? Uh, just a quick update on, um, you know, Samsung. Samsung, the, okay. The fold. Apparently, they fixed uh, both problems with the screen. Hmm. Um, they're, um, the screen protector that they said that uh, can't be peeled off, apparently, they just stretched it, you know, more to the edge so uh, people don't see it. Okay. I mean, that's an obvious, obvious fix. But um, with the dust getting under the screen, they apparently fixed that as well by um, just adding like some sort of protective barrier. Oh, cool. So they're confident about it. All um, right. Whether or not they're going to have like a full-on launch and release again so the public can buy it. Who knows? That's good. Okay, that's, that's good news. Since the part of the display that wasn't attached to the end of the plastic bezel surrounding the screen, some reviewers assumed it was a screen protector and pulled it off, of course. To stop this from happening, Samsung has extended this layer so it's under the bezel and the edge isn't on the screen to tempt you. So there's going to be no way to peel it off by the looks of it. I think that's a good move. Mm -hmm. I think this is one of those circumstances in which you go back to the drawing board and you end up with a better product. We got to wait and see, though. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we got to get it in hand. I'm not going to say anything at this point, but uh, they tried their best here to rework the thing without completely reworking the thing because you know, developing these takes years, obviously. Uh, but the ultimate judgment still, you got to wait for yeah. the public to get their hands on. I mean, public, it's a whole different ball game. the type of stuff they're going to do with these devices and what they're going to put these devices through. So they may still find a way to mess it up, but this definitely sounds like and looks like an improvement on a previous version. So some good news. You have any questions for us, Will? Uh, yep. All right, we'll take a couple. Since smartphones are getting way better and people are holding on to phones for longer, do you think we will have to purchase software updates in the future when smartphones become too advanced and as the benefit of having a new device gets to its lowest point? Well, that's an old school throwback. Uh, we were talking the other day. I remember as a kid waiting in line for a Windows box, an, an upgrade, I think it was to Windows 95, the physical box to get up to date, to be one with the modern times of that era, which was Windows. That's pretty wild. No, I don't think this will happen. I mean, in fact, I feel like it's going the other direction. Uh, you have these bizarre licensing agreements on the Android side, for example. Google's business, they're the primary provider of operating systems really now when it comes to uh, market share footprint and and their model their business model is so diversified they're making money on on ads they're making money on um, services uh, google drive like they're they're coming in later on 
they get you they get their uh, foot in the door and then figure out how to generate revenue from you as a user along the way tracking you and so forth youtube and all all these uh, various ways there's such a diversified business they don't need to charge you for an os so i don't personally see that happening on Apple's side, I don't see that either because even back in the day when they didn't have the market share that they did with laptops, oh no, they did used to charge at one They time. did, yeah. They used to charge and then they got rid of it because- they, But it was like 30 bucks. It wasn't a lot of money. That's yeah. true. Uh, it just does not seem like a futuristic concept to me. It's just this stuff is too fluid. These patches are flying out left, right, and center. I don't think that's going to happen in the future. I think- the way that these businesses are going to continue to generate revenue in the face of a limited number of hardware upgrades is that they're going to have to get more involved in the services, diversified offerings like Google, like Apple is pitching on their latest keynote, Amazon. They're going to just have to do more things. That's what I see happening. What do you think Steve Jobs would think of Apple today? I remember watching interviews of him. He was inspiring and refused to compromise on what he wanted. Kind of feels like today Apple are just doing their best to stay in the lead instead of innovate. Thanks. Uh, yeah, he probably wouldn't be that happy. He just didn't strike me as a guy that was ever really satisfied. He probably he might not be too happy with me, in fact. Pretty sure that would be the case. I've made some critical videos about Apple in the past. I know he used to be very serious about interacting with the media and things like this. Uh, he may not have made this iPhone 11 render that Will's showcasing right now. He had some some interesting perceptions, like in terms of using a pen. He never wanted to use a pen on a touchscreen, and then now Apple has a iPad Pro with a pen. Although apparently that statement has been misquoted a number of times. It wasn't so much a pen in general, but the idea of a pen on a really small screen, a stylus was the thing that he was not necessarily in favor of. Uh, the iPhone specifically was such an innovative product that I'm not so sure he would have had another iPhone in, in, his, in his backpack. It was just, uh, it's kind of like a once in a lifetime, once in a generation, possibly once in a hundred years in terms of significance. It really changed a lot of things. And it was in development for a very long time under his watch. So I don't know that we would have seen another one of those, but you're probably right. He, he, I mean, he probably wouldn't be too satisfied, especially with some recent developments in the space. I talked earlier about the keyboards on the latest MacBooks. Like I think stuff like that would, would really bug him. But that said, he was the same guy who, when the antenna gate thing was going on, said, you're holding it wrong. So he was hyper competitive, but also very proud. And I'm not sure how that would mesh with today's marketplace. Like, would he be on Twitter? Would he be mixing it up? Tim Cook's on there. It would be really interesting. It would be cool because the dude was obviously charismatic and interesting, competitive, talented, all of these things. And so... I think the tech world would be more dynamic if he was still involved in it, whether it was at Apple or somewhere else. But I doubt he'd be satisfied with anything Apple's doing because I just he just didn't strike me as a dude that was all that satisfied ever. All right, last question. I love the new show and enjoy it from seeing... Thank you. Thank you, Drew, by the way. From seeing videos about you and coffee, I was wondering if you prefer coffee made yourself or coffee from a business. Regardless, what is your favorite company to get coffee from? Continue making this awesome show. 
I start the day with homemade coffee every day. It's part of the ritual. Like I'm not, I'm not really up until I've made a coffee. I use one of these devices that Will's showing off. It's called a Chemex. It's just like a very simple uh, glass contraption. It looks like a, it belongs in a science lab. It sort of looks like a beaker. And you just put a paper filter in top and literally all you do is boil water and pour it over grinds. Now I do like to grind fresh coffee as opposed to buying pre-ground. I think that's the like that's the very first and most important upgrade you can make to your to your coffee process. I don't have this by the way. I don't have the automatic. I have the actual classic pour over and I have a few different sizes of it by the way. Uh, I have a hand blown 13 cup the one at the far bottom right corner there. If you just go yeah right there. I have a this is the biggest one they make. And it's hand-blown glass. It's kind of pricey for what it is, but you do not need this one. You can get into one of the cheaper ones, especially if you don't need to make that much coffee. Anyway, um, so the first step and the most important step in the coffee process, in my opinion, is just grinding your own beans because so much of the flavor escapes right in that moment. And so if you're if you're making coffee with fresh beans that you ground, it's like your coffee flavor is going up immediately. So even if you don't get a fancy setup like this, just doing that one step would be my recommendation. But I still do buy coffee from stores. I buy coffee from Starbucks and, and so on. Sometimes it's just a convenience factor. I just need something quick. I'm not discriminating. Actually, I think for a fast food place, I think Starbucks actually delivers a fairly decent product, even though there's all kinds of scrutiny with Starbucks. They get all kinds of heat because, well, I guess that's just what happens when you're that mega in anything almost it's like certain people get exploited and, and you know you get all all kinds of uh, attention and and scrutiny and criticism but for what they deliver in the time that they do on every street corner i had this nitro cold brew today that will showcasing although they wouldn't give me a venti they said it was too dangerous grande max because of the caffeine content. But then you click you click Grande and it's 280 milligrams. So what would it have been? 500 milligrams? I guess maybe that's a lot if they gave me the venti. I'm not. Look, try the nitro cold brew. It's pretty good in my opinion. But to each their own, start the day with the ritual in my opinion. It, uh, it requires something from you. It's a process to kind of tune the mind up. It's not just about drinking the coffee. It's the process. It's you see yourself hitting the buttons of the day, getting the engine started, getting the mind going, and uh, this puts you in gear. And then the coffee is just one component within the ritual that sets you up. So if, if you have a little bit of time in the morning, I know that that is a luxury that not everybody has. But if you do, check it out, grind some beans, and see where you're at. See where you're uh, it's, it's very meditative, the process itself. Although you sit there grinding, making a bunch of noise, not so meditative for anyone else trying to sleep. Not nearly as meditative. So we take that into consideration. But you're talking about the hand crank? So the trouble with the hand crank is consistency of grind. If you're very particular about, I have a burr grinder from Cuisinart, and you can toggle in the exact density, like the size of the grind. And I've experimented a lot with it. And I like a fine grind. Fine grind, the potency goes through the roof. That stuff's like rocket fuel. So a little tougher to achieve with a hand grinder. But ritual perspective could be a fun gig. 
you're there, you're grinding, it's coffee, the smell, it's, uh, it's all very exciting. Coffee's a wonderful thing. I feel, I mean, if, if you, uh, for whatever reason, can't consume, maybe some decaf. I don't know if uh, you're sensitive, something like this. Tea is great too. Willie Do's always on the tea, match of this, match of that. So That's great. there's a lot of options out there for people. And uh, however it is that you start the day, just get after it, get in there, do what you got to do. Look at this guy roasting his own beans. Yeah, shout out to Peaceful Cuisine. He's oh, cool. Willie Do, sending shout outs. Yeah. Free promo. Peaceful Cuisine. It looks peaceful, man. It I mean, does, I can't, yeah. I can't even hear it right now. So this guy is using some kind of contraption. Will's showcasing a video. It's a hand crank roaster. There's a flame underneath and a basket that holds the beans, and he sort of slowly tumbles them over the heating element. And, you know, he's roasting his own beans. A uh, little quick tidbit before we're done on the coffee thing. The lighter the roast, the higher the caffeine content. So this is a really weird situation where, like, unlike alcohol, where the stronger the flavor, typically the higher the alcohol content, in coffee, the stronger the flavor, likely less caffeine content in a lighter roast. The dark roast, which is robust and wonderful, which is what I tend to gravitate towards, less caffeine content, marginally speaking, but less caffeine content than the lighter roasts. So keep that in mind. If you're caffeine sensitive, you think you reach for the light one, it ain't like a light beer. It's the opposite, in fact. Light on flavor, heavy on caffeine. That's the message of the day. So take that with you. And uh, 53 minutes. I just, we got a new clock, by the way. I don't even know what the target is. Are we, is this show an hour? People seem to ask. For go on, go on, Will. Fill seven more minutes. It's all you now, okay? Go ahead. I'm good. You can end <laughs> it there. Um, all right, there you have it. Have a good one.